Chapter 14 of The Pretty Lady by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evans. Chapter 14 Queen. Then Lady Queenie Paul entered rather hurriedly, filling the room with a distinguished scent. All the men rose in haste, and there was a frightful scraping of chair legs on the floor. Lady Queenie cheerfully apologised for being late, and, begging no one to disturb himself, took a modest place between the chairman and the secretary, and a little behind them. Lady Queenie obviously had what is called race. The renown of her family went back far, far beyond its special Victorian vogue, which had transformed an earldom into a marquisate, and which, incidentally, was responsible for the new family Christian name that Queenie herself bore. She was young, tall, slim, and pale, and dressed with the utmost smartness in black, her half-brother having gloriously lost his life in September. She nodded to the secretary, who blushed with pleasure, and she nodded to several members, including G.J. Being accustomed to publicity and to seeing herself nearly every week in either the Tatler or the Sketch, she was perfectly at ease in the room, and the fact that nearly the whole company turned to her as plants to the sun did not in the least disturb her. The attention which she received was her due, for she had few rivals as a war worker. She was connected with the Queen's Work for Women Fund, Queen Mary's Needlework Guild, the Three Arts Fund, the Women's Emergency Corps, and many minor organisations. She had joined a women's suffrage society because such societies were being utilised by the government. She had had ten lessons in first aid in ten days, had donned the Red Cross, and gone to France with two motor-cars and a staff and a French maid, in order to help in the great national work of nursing wounded heroes. And she might still have been in France, had not an unsympathetic and audacious colonel of the RAMC insisted on her being shipped back to England. She had done practically everything that a patriotic girl could do for the war, except perhaps join a voluntary aid detachment, and wash dishes and scrub floors for fifteen hours a day, and thirteen and a half days a fortnight. It was from her mother, that she had inherited the passion for public service. The Marchioness of Letchford had been the cause of more philanthropic work in others than any woman in the whole history of philanthropy. Lady Letchford had said, Let there be Letchford hospitals in France, and lo, there were Letchford hospitals in France. When troublesome complications arose, Lady Letchford had, with true self-effacement, surrendered the establishments to a thoroughly competent committee and while retaining a seat on the committee for herself and another for Queenie, had curved tirelessly away to the inauguration of fresh and more exciting schemes. "'Mamma was very sorry she couldn't come this afternoon,' said Lady Queenie, addressing the chairman. The formula of those with authority in deciding now became, "'I don't know exactly what Lady Letchford's view is, but I venture to think.' Then suddenly the demeanour of every member of the committee was quickened, Everybody listened intently to everything that was said. A couple of members would speak together. Pattern designing and the manufacture of paper ships, chains and flowers ceased. It was though a tonic had been mysteriously administered to each individual in the elevating room. The cause of the change was a recommendation from the hospital's management subcommittee that it be an instrument to the new matron of the smaller hospital to forbid any nurse and any doctor to go out alone together in the evening. Scandal was insinuated. Nothing really wrong, but a bad impression produced upon the civilians of the tiny town, who could not be expected to understand the holy innocence 
which underlies the superficial license of Anglo-Saxon manners. The personal characters and strange idiosyncrasies of every doctor and every nurse were discussed. Broad principles of conduct were enunciated, together with the advantages and disadvantages of those opposite poles, discipline and freedom. The argument continually expanded, branching forth like the timber of a great oak tree from the trunk, and the minds of the committee ran about the tree like monkeys. The interest was endless. A quiet delegate, who had just returned from a visit to the tiny town, completely blasted one part of the argument by asserting that the hospital bore a blameless reputation among the citizens. But new arguments were instantly constructed by the adherents of the idea of discipline. The committee had plainly split into two even parties. G.J. began to resent the harshness of the disciplinarians. "'I think we should remember,' he said in his modest voice, "'I think we should remember that we are dealing with adult men and women.' The libertarians at once took him for their own. The disciplinarians gave him to understand with their eyes that it might have been better if he, as a new member attending his first meeting, had kept silence. The discussion was inflamed. One or two people glanced surreptitiously at their watches. The hour had long passed six-thirty. G.J. grew anxious about his rendezvous with Christine. He had enjoined exactitude upon Christine. But the main body of the excited and happy committee had no thought of the flight of time. The amusements of the tiny town came up for review. As a fact, there was only one amusement, the cinema. The whole town went to the cinema. Cinemas were always darkened. Human nature was human nature. G.J. had an extraordinarily realistic vision of the hospital staff slaving through its long and heavy day and its everlasting week, and preparing in sections to amuse itself on certain evenings, and thinking with pleasant anticipation of the ecstasies of the cinema, and pathetically unsuspicious that its fate was being decided by a council of omnipotent deities in the heaven of a London hotel. "'Mama has never mentioned the subject to me,' said Lady Queenie, in response to a question, looking at her rich muff. "'This is a question of principle,' said somebody sharply, implying that at last individual consciences were involved, and that the opinions of the Marchioness of Letchford had ceased to weigh. "'I am afraid it's getting late,' said the impassive chairman. "'We must come to some decision.' In the voting, Lady Queenie, after hesitation, raised her hand with the disciplinarians. By one vote the libertarians were defeated, and the dalliance of the hospital staff in leisure hours received a severe check. "'She would, of course,' breathed the sharp-nosed little woman in the chair next but one to G.J., gazing inimicably at the lax mouth and cynical eyes of Lady Queenie, who for four years had been the subject of universal whispering and some shouting and one or two ferocious battles in London. Chair-legs scraped. People rose here and there to go as they rise in a music hall after the Scottish comedian has retired bowing from his final encore. They protested urgent appointments elsewhere. The chairman remarked that other important decisions yet remained to be taken but his voice had no insistence because he had already settled the decisions in his own mind. G.J. seized the occasion to depart. Mr. Hope, the chairman detained him a moment, the committee hopes you will allow yourself to be dominated to the accounts subcommittee. We understand that you are by way of being an expert. The subcommittee meets on Wednesday mornings at eleven, doesn't it, Sir Charles? Half past, said Sir Charles. No, half past. G.J., somewhat surprised to learn of his expertise in accountancy, consented to the suggestion, 
which renewed his resolution, impaired somewhat by the experience of the meeting, to be of service to the world. "'You will receive the notice, of course,' said the chairman. Down below, just as G.J. was getting away with Christine's chrysanthemums in their tissue paper, Lady Queenie darted out of the lift opposite. It was she who, at Concepcion's instigation, had had him put in the committee. "'I say, Queen,' he said with a casual air, on account of the flowers, "'who's been telling them I know about accounts?' "'I did.' "'Why?' "'Why?' she said maliciously. "'Don't you keep an account of every penny you spend?' It was true. Here was a fair example of her sardonic and unscrupulous humour, a humour not of words, but of acts. G.J. simply tossed his head, aware of the futility of expostulation. She went on in a different tone. "'You were the first to see Connie?' "'Yes,' he said sadly. "'She's lain in my arms all afternoon,' Lady Queenie burst out, her voice liquid. "'And now I'm going straight back to her.' She looked at him with the strangest, triumphant expression. Then her large, equivocal blue eyes fell from his face to the flowers, and their expression simultaneously altered to disdainful amusement, full of mischievous implications. She ran off without another word. The glazed entrance doors revolved, and he saw her nip into an electric broom, which, before he had time to button his overcoat, vanished like an apparition in the rainy mist. Chapter 15 Evening Out he found Christine exactly as he had left her, in the same tea-gown and the same posture and on the same sofa. But a small table had been put by the sofa, and on this table was a penny bottle of ink in a saucer and a pen. She was studying some kind of official form. The pucker between the eyes was very marked. "'Already!' she exclaimed, as if amazed. "'But there is not a clock that goes, and I have not the least idea of the hour.' "'Besides, I was splitting my head to fill up this form.' Such was her notion of being exact. He had abandoned an important meeting of a committee which was doing untold mercies to her compatriots in order to keep his appointment with her, and she, whose professional business it was that evening to charm him and harmonise with him, had merely flouted the appointment. Nevertheless, her gestures and smile as she rose and came towards him were so utterly exquisite that immediately he also flouted the appointment. What, after all, could it matter whether they dined at eight, nine, or even ten o'clock? "'Thou wilt pardon me, monsieur?' she murmured, kissing him. No woman had ever put her chin up to his as she did, nor would the glance express so unreserved a surrender to his masculinity. She went on, twining languishly round him. "'I do not know whether I ought to go out. I am yet far from... It is perhaps imprudent. Absurd, he protested. He could not bear the thought of her not dining with him. He knew too well the desolation of a solitary dinner. Absurd, we go in a taxi. The restaurant is warm. We return in a taxi. To please thee, then. What is that for? It is for the telephone. Thou understandest how it is necessary that I have the telephone, me. But I comprehend nothing of this form. She passed him the form. She had written her name in the space allotted, Christine Dubois. A fair calligraphy. But what a name! The French equivalent of Smith. Nothing could be less distinguished. Suddenly it occurred to him that Concepcion's name also was Smith. I will fill it up for you. It's quite simple. It is possible that it is simple when one is English. But English! 
that is as if to say chinese everything contrary here's a pen no i have my fountain pen he hated a cheap pen and still more a penny bottle of ink but somehow this particular penny bottle of ink seemed touching in its simple ugliness she was eminently teachable he would teach her his own attitude towards penny bottles of ink of course she would need the telephone that could not be denied as christine was signing the form marta entered with the chrysanthemums which he had handed over to her she had arranged them in a horrible blue glass vase cheaply gilded and while marta was putting the vase on the small table there was a ring at the outer door marta hurried off christine said kissing him again tenderly thou art a squanderer fine for me to tell thee not to buy costly flowers thou hast spent at least ten shillings for these with ten shillings no no he interrupted her five it was a fib he paid half a guinea for the few flowers but he could not confess it they could hear a powerful voice indistinctly booming at the top of the stairs two callers on one afternoon g j reflected and yet she had told him she went out for the first time only the day before yesterday he scarcely liked it but his reason rescued him from the puerility of a grievance against her on this account why not she's bound to be a marked success marta returned to the drawing-room and shut the door madame she began slightly agitated speak then christine urged catching her agitation it is the police g j had a shock he knew many of the policemen who lurked in the dark doorways of piccadilly at night had little friendly talks with them held them for excellent fellows but a policeman invading the flat of a courtesan and himself in the flat seemed a different being from the honest stalwarts who threw the beams of lanterns on the keyholes of jewellers shops christine steeled herself to meet the crisis with self-reliance she pointedly did not appeal to the mail well what is it that he wants he talks of the chimney it appears this morning there was a chimney in fire but since we burn only anthracite and gas he knows madame's name there was a pause christine asked sharply and mysteriously how much do you think if madame gave five pounds having regard to the chic of the quarter christine rushed into the bedroom and came back with a five-pound note here chuck that at him politely tell him we are very sorry yes madame but he'll never take it you can't treat the london police like that g j could not help expostulating as soon as marta had gone he feared some trouble my poor friend christine replied patronizingly thou art not up in these things marta knows her affair a woman very experienced in london he will take it thy policeman and if i do not deceive myself no more chimneys will burn for about a year ah the police do not wipe their noses with broken bottles she meant that the police knew their way about i know more than they i do not wipe my nose with broken bottles she was moved indignant stoutly defensive g j grew self-conscious moreover her slang disturbed him it was the first slang he had heard her use and in using it her voice had roughened but he remembered that conceptian also used slang an advanced slang upon occasion the booming ceased a door closed marta returned once more well he is gone he was very nice madame i told him about madame but madame was very discreet marta finished in a murmur so much the better now help me to the rest quick quick monsieur will be impatient g j was ashamed of the innocence he had displayed 
and ashamed too of the whole metropolitan police force admirable though it was in stopping traffic for a perambulator across the road five pounds these ladies were bled five pounds wanted earning it was a good sign though that she had not so far asked him to contribute and he felt sure that she would not come in then poltroon she cooed softly and encouragingly from the bedroom where martha was busy with her the door between the bedroom and the drawing-room was open g j humming obeyed the invitation and sat down on the bed between two heaps of clothes christine was very gay she was like a child she had apparently quite forgotten her migraine and also the incident of the policeman she snatched the cigarette from g j s mouth took a puff and put it back again then she sat in front of the large mirror and did her hair while Marta buttoned her boots. Her corset fitted beautifully, and as she raised her arms above her head, under the shaded lamp G.J. could study the marvellous articulation of the arms at the bare shoulders. The close atmosphere was drenched with femininity. The two women, one so stylish and the other by contrast piquantly a heavy slattern, hid nothing whatever from him, bestowing on him with perfect tranquillity the right to be there, and to watch at his ease every mysterious transaction. The most convincing proof that Christine was authentically young. And G.J. had the illusion again that he was in the Orient, and it was extraordinarily agreeable. The recollection of the scene of the lecture committee amused him like a pantomime witnessed afar off through a gauze curtain. It had no more reality than that. But he thought better of the committee now. He perceived the wonderful goodness of it and of its work. It really was running those real hospitals. It had a real interest in them. He meant to do his very best in the accounts department. After all, he had been a lawyer, and knew the routine of an office and the minutest phenomena of a ledger. He was eager to begin. How findest thou me? She stood for inspection. She was ready, except the gloves. The angle of her hat, the provocation of her veil, these things would have quickened the pulse of a Patagonian. Perfume pervaded the room. He gave the classic response that nothing could render trite. Tu es exquise. She raised her veil just above her mouth. In the drawing-room she hesitated, and then settled down on the piano-stool like a bird alighting, and played a few bars from the Rosenkavalier waltz. He was thunderstruck, for she had got not only the air, but some of the accompaniment right. Go on, go on, he urged her, marvelling. She turned, smiling, and shook her head. That is all that I can recall to myself. The obvious sincerity of his appreciation delighted her. She is really musical, he thought, and was convinced that while looking for a bit of coloured glass, he picked up an emerald. Martha produced his overcoat, and when he was ready for the street, Christine gazed at him and said, For the true chic, there are only Englishmen. In the taxi, she proved to him by delicate effronteries the genuineness of her confessed fancy for him. And she poured out slang. He began to be afraid, for this excursion was an experiment such as he had never tried before in London. In Paris, of course, the code was otherwise. But as soon as the commissionaire of the restaurant at Victoria approached the door of the taxi, her manner changed. She walked up the long interior with the demureness of a stockbroker's young wife out for the evening from Putney Hill. He thought, relieved. She is the embodiment of common sense. At the end of the vista of white tables, the restaurant opened out to the left. 
in a far corner they were comfortably secure from observation. They sat down. A waiter beamed his flatteries upon them. G.J. was serenely aware of his own skilled faculty for ordering a dinner. He looked over the menu card at Christine. Nobody could possibly tell that she was a professed enemy of society. These French women are astounding, he thought. He intensely admired her. He was mad about her. His bliss was extreme. He could not keep it within bounds meet for the great world catastrophe. He was happy as for quite ten years he had never hoped to be. Yes, he grieved for Concepcion, but somehow grief could not mingle with nor impair the happiness he felt. And was not Concepcion lying in the affectionate arms of Queenie Paul? Christine, glancing about her contentedly, reverted to one of her leading ideas. Truly, it is very romantic there, London. End of chapter 15